Foreign affairs and international development issues often take a back seat in federal election campaigns. But this election began as the Taliban took control over Afghanistan and the world is grappling with a global pandemic. Welcome back to In Focus with David Coletto. I'm David Coletto. On this episode of In Focus, I'm joined by Julia Anderson, the CEO at the Canadian Partnership for Women and Children's Health, or CanWatch for short. CanWatch has over 100 members ranging from NGOs, academic institutions, health professional associations, and individuals partnering to improve health outcomes for women and children in more than 1,000 communities worldwide. It has also been a client of mine for several years now. We sat down as week two of the federal election campaign comes to an end to talk about international development, the global pandemic, and a fascinating research project CanWatch commissioned to understand public attitudes surrounding foreign affairs and international development. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Julia Anderson. Well, Julia, thanks so much for, for joining the podcast today. Uh, nice to see you. Nice to see you as well. Really happy to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Well, I want to start on a really down note. Um, you know, we'll talk about politics in the federal election later, um, but it, it, it almost feels not that important given what's going on in Afghanistan. And uh, as, a, as the head of a, a partnership of, of, you know, uh, dozens and dozens of, of organizations that are working on the ground in countries all over the world. I'm hoping you could give our listeners a sense of, you know, your take on what's happening in Afghanistan and, and, the, and the humanitarian crisis that I'm, I'm sure has already started, but will likely, you know, go forward and how aid organizations sort of deal with uh, a situation like this and how it affects the work that you do. Yeah, thanks for thanks for raising it. I mean, our our hearts and collective minds and energies are just being sent uh, to the folks on the ground uh, in Afghanistan. We know that Canada played a role, um, and because of the role that it played, and we can, I hope, in in the months to come, we'll start to unpack kind of where we went right, where we went wrong with the role that we played. But for now, because we played a role, our first and foremost concern is the obligation that that then creates to protect the people who supported us, who worked with us on the ground, to protect the people whom we we supported to kind of live out the values that, uh, that we espouse, such as women's rights, gender equality, I mean, I, I wrote an op-ed that came out today in the Star <clears throat> and talked about the call from the Ontario Midwives Association saying, look, we've got 105 uh, refugee midwives that are currently in Canada that became refugees as a result of working on uh, a mandate that's been very important to this government, sexual health and reproductive rights. So these were midwives supporting with contraceptives, supporting with births, all the, all the things that midwives do in communities. And their families are currently in hiding in Afghanistan and in the neighboring countries. So I really saw that, that call as, um, you know, there, there are no quick solutions here, but there are entry points. And let's follow the leads we have and let's work as quickly as possible and let's drop the red tape. We saw during the pandemic, the ability of Global Affairs Canada 
to significantly shift its processes and its red tape. And I applaud the work that they did there. We need to double down on that work and, and just rip apart that red tape, quickly process the folks that are on the ground in neighboring countries. Because one thing you got you have to think about is, you know, people are saying, well, we need to get people out of Afghanistan. Absolutely, that's true. But you also have Afghanis in neighboring countries who once they're safely in Canada, that creates space, right? Because you actually run out of space for people to flee to in the direct and neighboring countries. So if we get and process folks that have been waiting, that have their, you know, have passed all their UNHRC uh, uh, screening and all those kinds of things, the faster we can get them over here, that does on some level uh, create some elasticity and some space for others to flee. So let's look for those entry points and let's just go. Canadians uh, care about this. The government made an announcement today for additional resources. Great, but we're gonna have to double down on in the, the months and, and years to come on that because I mean, right now we're looking at a crisis, but the type of funding that, that actually averts future crisis is, is development and long-term funding. So it's, it's all these things. And I think the most important thing is we keep the pressure on we keep the attention on. I've been really pleased to see that Canadians and journalists and folks have been bringing this up on the campaign trail and saying this matters to Canadians. We see ourselves as having had a role here and we're not gonna just walk away. So let's keep up the pressure and keep people thinking about how to best act and, and then just you know supporting the actors with the kinds of mental health resources that they need when they come back. We've got a major community of veterans who are suffering right now because of mm-hmm. all this investment they made. Let's get them the resources, the mental health supports that they need. Um, you know, and I think we just need sort of a wraparound approach that's very, very quick. Um, and, you know, the history books will, will tell us later what we could have done better, but let's not use getting it perfect as an excuse yeah. for an action. Yeah, it's, uh, it's come as, a, I think, a shock, but oftentimes these shocks... Like we should, like we knew this was coming, right? And and often the case these 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 moments happen, and everyone's shocked. But you know the evidence was there that this was going to be coming. Um, yeah. So, um, well, um, yeah. Thoughts and 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 best wishes to, to everyone who's in a really tough position right now. And yeah, you're right. I I think I think I think Canadians are paying attention to it. It's. And, you know, if you're following any of the news, it's the lead now. We're in the middle of a federal election, but that's the second story, which I think shows um, how important people are, are placing on this. Um, yeah, just one, just one plug, UNICEF um, Canada. I mean, I'm, we've got a ton of members doing a ton of work, but UNICEF have publicly come out and said that they're, they're staying on the ground and to ensure the, the, the rights and protection of every child. And so donations can go there we've got other great partners working um in the region and around and i think uh at this moment donations really matter and they kind of put um they 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 enable they put the resources in the hands of the people who are doing the work so as much as the canadian government needs to step up really encourage canadians to to get behind that as well that's a great point i want to switch gears slightly uh, no, not slightly. It's pretty big shift, but um, you know, at the same time that Afghanistan uh, is, is sort of in crisis, we're still in the middle of our own global crisis related to the pandemic. Um, 
you know, here in Canada, most Canadians have been fully vaccinated. Most of the restrictions we've been living with are over. There's fear that maybe some of them are going to be coming back as, as cases rise. And the Delta variant is, is really worrying. And I know there's lots of debate in this election about vaccinating our own people. And now even, which I'm sure drives you crazy, conversations about um, third shots and, and sort of boosters, given that so few people in the developing world have even one, let alone two. Um, I think, you know, what, what from your perspective, from a global perspective in the work your, your, your members are doing on the ground and your advocacy, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit about some polling we did in a minute, but what's the state of, of the pandemic, the global pandemic from your eyes and the vaccine rollout happening in the developing world? I think that's a great question. And it's a question, unfortunately, that's not getting as much attention as it, it needs to receive. So, I mean, just in the numbers, uh, if you take 100 people in North America, 97, sorry, 92 of them uh, are vaccinated, fully vaccinated. That compares to uh, 6.7 people um, across the continent of Africa. Like just, you know, just line those people up in your head and, and go, what is wrong with us? You know, what are we thinking? Um, and when it comes to the, the health security um, sort of arguments around uh, variants and things like that, I mean, this is, this is both a poor policy decision because it's ultimately how many are we going to get a booster every six months to protect us from the new variants that are, that are really being allowed to, to fester and grow because of global inaction? Do we just want to stay on that treadmill or do we want to actually get off that treadmill and, and address this thing to the best of our ability once and for all? And that requires, you know, we could call it generosity, but we could also just call it smart policy mm. of, of vaccinating the world. So, I mean, 0.3% of vaccines have been administered in low, in low income countries. Like that's just a wild thought when we're talking booster shots. So I think, you know, Canada stepped up, it supported 1.3 billion dollars to the global effort through the COVAX. We've made some government interventions that, that are smart and that are, you know, considered generous among the G7. What I keep saying and what I think is really important is that the global bar is very low. The global bar for thinking about a global pandemic as a global challenge is very low. And mm -hmm. so for Canada to like step over that bar means absolutely nothing when it comes to actually addressing the, the scope and scale and magnitude of the challenge in front of us. So what I wanna see from the government that I elect, you know, as a taxpayer, as a Canadian, I wanna see them actually being propositionable about how to raise that bar. You know, how do we get to the point where we're having a smart global conversation about vaccinating the world, about getting production, supply and delivery out to every single citizen of this planet that wants a vaccine eliminating therefore or reducing the risk of variants and actually enabling sort of the a, a return to trade to a thriving global economy etc cetera, etc cetera. so that's what i'd love to see that's not where the conversation is at it's really mm -hmm. stuck with this kind of oh how much are we going to give to the act and the covax that that's not where we need to be we need our our health experts to crowd in and talk about what ambition would really look like and how Canada could start, you know, at the G7 and other places raising mm -hmm. that bar. I mean, your point about this treadmill, you know, when you, when you use that, that visual, it, it, it really what it's going to become unless we solve this, right? Like this idea that we're having, we're having some trouble getting people to take a second shot. 
how much trouble are we going to have when people are going to need to take a third or a fourth or a fifth if these variants keep emerging from places that haven't had one, right? Because we aren't uh, dealing with it. And, and we did some polling with, with, with your organization earlier this year. We followed up with some work for, for World Vision that showed, you know, the public isn't offside with that idea. They recognize overwhelmingly that if we don't end the pandemic everywhere, it's not over. And, you know, our self-interest is tied to the self-interest of everybody. Um, that, that this pandemic has, has, you know, I always think about it personally, but I think Canadians generally understand that it's shrunk our world. It, it hasn't shrunk our world. It's shown how small our world is. Yeah. And that we, and that's true of not just a virus. It's true of economic inequality, of social inequality. Those things spread and they have impacts on us here. Um, and so I guess bringing it back to politics for a minute, um, you know, why is it, why don't we see, you know, our political leaders connecting the dots and showing people that, you know, yeah, we should be talking and focused to some extent of what's happening here in Canada, but we, but I haven't heard, I don't believe, and I haven't followed every single word that the leaders have uttered, but I haven't heard at least covered anyone talking about how, you know, uh, a back to normal strategy here in Canada has to include a global response that's bigger and more bold than what we've done so far. Right. Does that yeah. surprise you? Like, I'm sure it disappoints you, but wh- why do you think that's the case? You've been working in this, this, this world of, you know, international development and, and official assistance for a long time. Like what, what's holding these political leaders back? Yeah, I, I think part of it, I can't speak for them, but I think part of it is, um, and it actually relates uh, to the Afghanistan question too. I heard uh, someone on a podcast saying, you know, there's no easy button on this one. And I, you know, like the, that old Staples easy button, uh, you know, that was easy. There's no easy button. Um, I think if there was an obvious and concrete solution to this global problem, you could probably crowd some financing in. So Canada would, would probably show up and, and, you know, it did to an extent for the ACT. I think when, when asked, Canada will show up. And I think politicians would, you know, then you could pose a question, will you donate this much money? Will you give this? Sure, they can answer those questions. I think the challenge right now is it's almost a global policy challenge where we don't know, we, don't, we know some of the questions, we don't know the answers, we need to do the thinking. We don't have the institutions in a strong enough position like the World Health Organization, the United Nations and others. They're not fit for purpose to really take on the thinking required to, to solve this particular challenge. You see similar echoes of this in the climate change and, and um, mm-hmm. sort of environmental movement where it's like, well, um, in some ways, the politicians are playing to this desire to have the answers, to give the answers and to say what they're going to do, as opposed to getting really smart and systems curious and saying, what can we do? Where can the solutions be? I mean, treating it more like scientists rather than preachers or prosecutors, yeah. as Adam Grant <laughs> talks about, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's not a great answer, but I think it's not a, a straightforward answer, but I think what we need to see and what we want to see and what Canadians should be demanding is that there's a strategy to think through this, right? We don't need to demand that the answers are this way or that, but that there's a strategy to think through this and that there's attention to it, right? And that there's an attention, a recognition that there's no domestic, there's no, you know, this budget came out and it was like, oh, this is a domestic budget, a strong domestic budget. There's just no strong domestic 
policy without a coherent and strong foreign policy that mm. takes into consideration the biggest global threat that has, you know, kind of been chasing us for decades, which is inequality, right? Like you just don't have, and if you look at climate, if you look at racial injustice, if you look at gender equality and like all those things fall under that big bucket of inequality. And if we don't get really smart about thinking through what are the long-term sustainable solutions to that, um, Canada is not going to fare well. I mean, Canada is a, a medium-sized country. It's it depends on the multilateral. It depends on good engage, good global engagement. We're not going to Canadians are not going to do well until the politicians and until I guess we start demanding more when it comes to foreign policy thinking and long-term solutions. And you use the you know you use climate change as a as a parallel or an example of of you know, the, the challenge sometimes of coordinating a global response to a crisis, but from a, just a domestic public opinion perspective, climate change is another issue where I actually think just like our global response to the pandemic, um, our, you know, how we uh, engage with, with lower income countries and, and support them in developing, like that the public is, is ahead of the politicians, that the public seems to get it. And yeah. the politicians are afraid or not willing, or some version of the both of those to to engage back, and I think that's a mistake. I, I do. I, I I do the polling. I I've, I've tested multiple ways of, of showing that. Yeah, you know, putting you know an investment in in official uh, assistance, um, development assistance is not going to win you an election. You and I can both agree on that, but to not include it as part of the broader context to show the country that you get how this world works. I, I just get, you know, I, I see it void of all our leaders. I'm not being partisan. It's just like, whether you're the current prime minister or you wanna be the prime minister, it feels like Canadians are being left with only part of the story. And that leaves them wondering, like, do we actually have, do you actually, like know what the outcome needs to be. And I agree with you. You don't have to have the solution because this is a really complicated issue, but at least you have to tell me that you know how we need to get there. Like what is the, the outcome we have to achieve? And, and so I, I just think there's a, there's a political opportunity that, that's being left on the table here to, 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 to integrate that global perspective into domestic politics that you know, I, I don't think Canada is, you know, alone, by the way, I think that happens in many, you know, countries around the world, but we seemingly are, are extra insular in our inability to like bring foreign policy, foreign policy and, and other issues globally into our, our own politics. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I mean, one, uh, I guess it could be portrayed as positive possibility and again there's no there's no real right answer on this but one thing that i think about sometimes is is the reason that this doesn't come up in the political imagination in the way that we would hope it would you know for kind of throwing solutions out there testing them thinking through putting positions out because actually uh the parties are fairly aligned mm -hmm. so it's not an issue in which and especially during election time, disagreement helps, right? You don't put out issues in, into the, the world where you all agree, because that wouldn't make sense, because then people don't know what to vote for. You talk about things, wedge issues, things you disagree on, things where there's policy distinctions. So the, the you know, 
democratic kind of my democratic hope is that the reason we don't talk about this during this period as much is because there is kind of alignment which would allow for a consistency of foreign policy which is quite helpful mm. so that's a possibility the other possibility which um i wish i could uh quote who said this but it was at an event and i i can't remember um who the person was but they were talking about how if you look at history prime ministers come into their real foreign policy chops kind of after a second or third mandate or, or into the end of their second, like sort of on their way out, they come into mm -hmm. the state's person persona. And if you looked, they were looking across parties. So not just, uh, you know, not, not with one political bent, but this notion that someone's really focused in as a leader of a party domestically as they take their first mandates and then they grow into a state's person role that has to look out into the world. Um, you know, and, and I thought that that was compelling and interesting because, uh, you know, Jean Chrétien, like Martin, um, Mulroney, like they were all kind of Joe Clark, like they were all in and around this event where we were talking about that and it was all foreign policy oriented. And I thought that's kind of interesting, right? That's an interesting idea that as you come into a later mandate, you start looking out into the world. And so in that way, if the liberals were to take office again and we, you know, um, if, if, the prime minister were to think that this is his last mandate, what opportunity is that for Canadians mm -hmm. to demand, okay, now it's time to show up in that state's person role. We want to see it. You know, we've given right. you the time, but now we want to see this. And certainly I'll be as an advocate um, taking that angle if, if that's what happens. And if it's a, if it's no tool government, if it's a same government, um, I would maybe push for an early entrance into that state person. Right. Um, you know, because I think the time is now. Just briefly, you mentioned sort of the potential that there is some consensus and that's why we don't talk about it or we don't debate it because most of the parties agree. I mean, it wasn't long ago where you actually had a conservative party leader running an election promising to cut foreign official development assistance by 25%, right? Um, and, and realizing that there's, there may be political gain to actually be seen as like, pulling out, not engaging more. But it's interesting to me that Aaron O'Toole, the current conservative leader, has you know a few months ago said, that's not going to be our position. That we're not um, going to cut uh, aid. So I think, I think there's evidence here that like you can, you know, again, you're not going to lead with foreign issues during an election, but it can be part of the broader image that you create of yourself, that you, you're worldly, you understand, you know, and that's ultimately what I think part of what Canadians are looking for in a, in a, in a prime minister, right? Like, yes, you take care of our house, but you worry about the threats outside of it, right? Like um, it, it's part of the job description. So anyways, I think, you know, I, I don't know if a lot of political uh, strategists or staffers are listening to this podcast, but maybe, you know, there's some advice there on, on, on the final few weeks of the campaign. Um, in the final 10 minutes, um, I, I do want to uh, talk about a really interesting project that, can watch uh, completed earlier this year. This is a polling and research podcast. So um, I'd be remiss not to talk about this study um, and, and I'll just describe it. So earlier this year, can watch your organization partnered with uh, Stanford university, the Canadian international council uh, and global Canada and foreign policy by Canadians to conduct some really interesting research. But this was not just, you know, a typical survey or a focus group that, that, are good research methods, but you went deeper and you 
um, conducted what is called a deliberative poll or a deliberative research exercise where you had a representative group of uh, 444 Canadians um, and you took them through, you know, survey. Uh, first, you started with a survey of four key poly, uh, foreign policy areas. Then each one of them took part in an eight to 12 hour, like small group discussion and debate session, which then was followed by another survey. And, and you know, the objectives in this design are to see when you actually get people engaged and talking and informed about these issues, how do their views and perspectives change, right? And hence the deliberative side of, of this research. And so, um, and then what this, what you did is you took those 444 folks who were engaged and you compared them to a control group of 300 who weren't engaged in this conversation and this debate. And so I've got so many pro uh, questions about this project, but, but I just want to start from your perspective uh, about what you learned um, about Canadian public opinion about foreign policy, specifically um, around CanWatch's real focus, which is global public health and human dignity. And what, if anything, really surprised you from both the process of doing this research and the outcomes and the, and the findings that you had? Yeah, I mean, this was such a fun project. And I just, if I were to develop a side hustle in addition to my role at CanWatch, it would be to go province to province and undertake this exercise of deliberative polling on a whole range of issues that I'm curious about, because it was the first time that I felt like, you know, I love polling and I love getting that snapshot in time, but I'm always left with a lack of understanding of why people held the beliefs that they did and what, what's kind of, what are the factors that influence their opinion formation? And, and yes, what are the factors that can shift, you know, their, their opinions on things and what arguments stand up to the test of, of other arguments and mm -hmm. what, what arguments don't. So this was fascinating. I mean, the, the most, the number one takeaway is that Canadians are deeply interested and willing to wade through the murky middle of and murky mud of foreign policy. They're willing to actually engage in the conversation that's nuanced, complex, cannot be communicated in a sound bite. There are no easy buttons, no simple answers, and they're willing to, to have those conversations. And they're willing to have those conversations, especially when the alternative views are put in front of them. So I think often in the kind of social change space that I work in, that is often trying to shift public opinion. We focus a lot on, um, you know, augmenting and building up an argument for something, and we kind of ignore or or avoid the argument against something. So mm. we get this in our space. I care a lot about global equity, and I care a lot about ca how Canada shows up on the world. And I'm often challenged. Well, what about here at home? Which I just find uh, I understand why people do it, but it's kind of ridiculous. I don't understand why good has to fight with good. Is there some sort of limit on the amount of good we can do in the world um, or the amount of obligation we have to, to make the world a better place? But anyways, that argument, I, you know, we're often dodging and avoiding it as opposed to talking about and exploring. Yes, if we make these choices, what is what are the implications then here at home? So we got a, a learning uh, out of this that I hadn't really explored at this level of depth that Canadians want to see consistency. They have a lot of humility, but they want to see consistency. They don't want us up preaching on a global stage if they cannot see the direct engagement and work on that particular set of issues here at home. Women in leadership, 
women's health, uh, sexual health and reproductive rights, and you know everything down to um, access issues to contraceptives. Well, if we don't have a national pharmacare plan that gets women across this country and men access to contraceptives, why are we going, you know, on a global stage to Family Planning mm -hmm. 2030 to talk about that? That doesn't mean don't do it. In fact, Canadians told us unequivocally, yes, do it here and do it there. Come on, like we can do, we are a wealthy, well-endowed country. We can do this um, wherever we want to do it and we need to do it in both places. So that was a huge learning for me. There were some linguistic learnings about the way that you use, uh, you know, the F word feminist. Uh, I really thought that we'd get a lot of resistance to that word um, when it came to foreign policy conversations. What we saw, in fact, was that we moved conservatives from those who identified as conservatives had a 36% support in advance of uh, the, the deliberative exercise for the a feminist foreign policy. Once they got and understood what we meant by that, that mm -hmm. word, uh, that went over to majority support. So just what you can do with a little bit of time, that's what I took away from this. Um, is just and, and, and the power of a word, right? As much as you and others may identify it with that word strongly, for others, it is like, they react. And so what this, I, I, it's so fascinating. What it shows is that once you actually explain what feminism means and how it's put into action, they can get behind it. Right. So it's just the power that we're like the politicization of words itself. And when we live in a world where, you know, we're, we're fighting over, you know, a dozen or more characters on a tweet, um, it, it just reaffirms the power of, of, of a single word to just turn people off. But, um, but that deep down, they actually, we all, this is my point. Like we agree far more in principle on many more things, but the words we use are sometimes um, weaponized, right. And, and used against or, or for things. Um, no, really like really interesting because I think, you know, deliberative polling has a place um, in, in almost every public policy and, and, and communications efforts, because, you know, as someone who spends my entire day asking people questions, I've come to see that, you know, the public is generally uh, informed enough about the things that they need to be informed of, but for most people, they don't have the time um, to spend becoming fully informed. Like you are about what you are an expert of and care deeply about, but it doesn't mean they don't want to or, or won't when asked. And, and there's like this, sometimes we fall into this trap by assuming that people are dumb or people are, are simplistic when in reality um, you know, we are, we are, pulled by cues and heuristics and, and all this kind of, there's this whole literature on like why, you know, the power of framing, but that doesn't mean you can't break people out of those um, with a conversation. Right. Yes. And with being just honest about the conversation, as opposed to sometimes our politics becomes, you know, in, in many ways, dishonest in terms of how we talk about issues. Yeah, absolutely. And what a hopeful project it was in that regard, because I mean, I do being in the space of looking at, you know, maternal mortality globally, vaccine equity globally, climate change. I mean, these, these challenges seem so grand um, and so, so complex. And then when you add to that, the, the dumbing down or the simplicity, and as you said, how much can you fit into a tweet? 
or a, you know, 10 characters that's going to get picked up because you're trying to get your message across. It can be really almost puts you into a state of paralysis mm -hmm. of action because it just feels like you're chipping away at, at something that's way too big. So to sit and observe 444 Canadians from coast to coast to coast, taking the time and digging into the nuance and being willing to grapple with true trade-offs. I mean, it was just, it was just so incredibly hopeful. And I think that, you know, my real learning is that no party should stand up and say after, after our exercise, which I think is a good representative, was a truly representative sample of Canadians, no party should stand up and say, we can ignore foreign policy, right? Foreign policy doesn't matter. Foreign policy, yes, you may need to take people along a journey of why it matters. You may need to explain and sort of get in, be willing to grapple with the nuance. But once you do that, I, I, think, I think this could become a much larger focal point for Canadian identity, Canadian values, et cetera, if, if we're willing to go there. And what I saw was a really willing, a real willingness on the part of Canadians. For anyone uh, interested in, in this report um, or, or details on how it was done, if you're curious on the methodology, just go to Google and search can watch, W-A-C-H for watch, and then deliberative poll. And it will be the first thing um, on your search terms. It's called foreign policy by Canadians and uh, you know, highly recommend uh, take a look. Last a brief question, a brief answer if you can. Uh, week two of the campaign's almost done. Um, what do you want to hear more of from the leaders uh, in the next three weeks? Let's get ambitious. Let's get bold. Let's let's put some big ideas on the table and debate them. And, you know, we've we've thrown out some of the ideas that I think were really distracting, like cutting ODA. We've got some foreign policy in the platforms that we've seen so far. Uh, let's have the conversation. And, you know, I don't have a I have some ideas about where I want that conversation to go and some policy directions, which I would love to see. But at the end of the day, I just would love to see a conversation about what we can do in the world, what we ought to do in the world, um, what that means for what we're going to do here in Canada, how we're going to square those two circles. And, and, you know, let's, let's have the conversation. Well, Julia, thank you so much for taking some time to, to walk us through um, what's probably a very busy time for you given all the stuff going on in the world. So, so thanks for giving a little bit of us, a little bit of, of it to us and um, look forward to seeing you again soon. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me again.